Before I begin today, I have to give credit to my friend and colleague, the Reverend Stephen Jonason, for the title and subject of today's sermon. Last year, in the middle of my search for a congregation to serve, he and I were talking about how to start things off right. And he said that one of his first sermons would always have this title, May I Offend You? I asked and received permission to use it. So just what does that mean? I try to be pretty straightforward in my life and my ministry, and it means on one level just that. I consider this fair warning that at some point, I, your minister, will offend you. Further, I feel that I need to let you know that it's my job to do so. <laughs> so you might be saying, why not just call the sermon, I will offend you? The fact that I'm asking and not telling points to the other side of the issue I'm bringing to you today. You have to be willing to listen to what I have to say, even if you disagree, no matter how much you might disagree. I don't take this part for granted. So today I'm asking for your permission, your permission to offend you, to say things you don't really want to hear, to engage in constructive disagreement with you, to challenge you, and from time to time, to push you in ways that I feel you need to be pushed. Now, to be honest, I don't really have to ask. In calling me as your minister last April, you gave me that permission. My letter of agreement contains a section which reads, it is a basic premise of this congregation that the pulpit is free and untrammeled. The minister is expected to express his values, views, and commitments without fear or favor. Now, it's, it's my guess that most of you haven't read my letter of agreement. <laughs> and in the vote that you took in favor of calling me, though I wasn't in the room at the time, my guess is that nobody said, we're voting to give Michael the right and responsibility to offend us from time to time. But the truth is that I will probably at some point offend you if I have not done so already, or at least make you a little mad. It might be when I take a stand on an issue of social justice on which reasonable people can and do disagree. I might offend you by insisting that a woman's body shouldn't be subject to governmental control, by supporting equal marriage rights for all, or by asking you to think about your power and privilege in our society and how that relates to the perpetuation of racism in America. I might offend you by my position on the wars our nation is fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, by my opinions on immigration, or by my suggestions on how to live environmentally sustainable lives. Perhaps you will be taken aback by my mere insistence that we have a moral obligation as a religious community to create a more just world. I might offend you in a matter of theology. You might bristle when I use the word God in worship, or you might feel empty when I don't. You might, like Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion, find my naturalistic theology to be a wishy-washy viewpoint that if I had any guts, I would just call atheism. <laughs> or you might feel that my seeing the natural world as the ground of all existence 
dismisses your own experience of something you label as a connection with the supernatural. Now, I've already had disagreements with half of the worship committee over the word prayer, and I have no doubt that those folks were representative of feelings that are more widespread. I've already had interesting discussions with several people about the theological implications of my Sunday wardrobe. Some have inquired as to whether I would wear a ministerial robe to preach in, or a stole, or, as I am doing today, a suit and tie. And why? <laughs> At some point, I might bring to the surface long-buried warnings against paganism from your Christian upbringing when I invoke the four directions in honor of those whose theology is earth-centered. I might make you hear in your head the voices of your Jewish parents teaching you about their experiences with anti-Semitism when I choose a reading or a hymn that includes the word church, even though we've consciously chosen a more inclusive name for this congregation. It's possible even that you and I will disagree about more mundane matters. Perhaps it will make you uneasy to know that you have a minister who doesn't mind talking about money from the pulpit, or sex, or voting, or any number of subjects that our society says should be taboo. Perhaps you don't want to understand yourself as connected to a larger movement of Unitarian Universalists, and I will remind you that you are. Perhaps I'll seek to change the thing you've cherished the most about our order of service. Whatever the issue, it's probable that at some point you and I will disagree. And at that point, we will need to remind ourselves why it's so wonderful to be Unitarian Universalists. In our faith, freedom of the pulpit is held to be, in the words of our agreement, a basic premise. Today, I'd like to explore why that is and what I believe it means. Freedom of the pulpit also has a counterpart. We call it freedom of the pew, or of the different colored metal chairs, maybe. <laughs> it's not mentioned anywhere in our fellowship's documents, but it's implied in many different ways. I hope that you will understand it a bit better at the end of our time together today, as well. Freedom of the pulpit is at the center of our faith. It's part of the relationship between minister and congregation, and it is so foundational that our association recommends that new congregations insert a clause about it in their bylaws. It's grounded in our history, the history of a free and voluntary religious community that comes together by agreement and not by force. The history of the development of a religion without creed or dogma to which people are forced to subscribe. Unitarian Universalists trace our traditions of governance back to 1648, when representatives from the congregations of the Massachusetts colonies came together to write the Cambridge Platform, which described the relationships among congregations as a community of autonomous institutions. In doing so, they rejected the hierarchy that until that point was an integral part of most Western religions. They dispensed with bishops and councils and any form of governance that could direct the work of an individual congregation. And instead, they gave the members of a congregation full control over matters within it. 
They define the covenant created by members of an individual congregation as the basis of our governance. They also describe the relationship between minister and congregation. And there are two specific parts of this relationship I think are important to know about. First, the Cambridge Platform basically says that in electing me as your minister, you agree to listen to what I have to say. It doesn't obligate you to agree with me. We'll get to that in a little bit. But it does say that your vote should not have been cast lightly. As I am now the person whose job it is to filter the world around us through theological lenses and make some sense of it on Sunday mornings. Your votes to call and ordain me define a relationship. The Reverend Daniel O'Connell describes it this way. The preacher is free to preach as they are called to preach, based on the fact that they are living a very different kind of life than are most of their parishioners. They have time for study, for engagement with the world that some of their parishioners don't, and they are brought to speak the truth to that particular body as best they can. They are not instructed by bishops. They are not instructed by a lectionary. They are instructed by their colleagues and by their study. Freedom of the pulpit is a concept that goes deep into our history. The Reverend Thomas Starr King in 1856 gave a sermon in which he said, Brethren, it isn't a question of what you want to hear or don't want to hear. It's simply a question of what, with my vision of spiritual laws and human responsibility, I ought to do. Now, you have elected me to spend time thinking about things. Theology, the world around us, the lives we're living, and to reflect those thoughts back to you from the pulpit. You have elected me too to paraphrase Unitarian minister Ralph Waldo Emerson, pass my life through the fire of thought and give some of the result back to you. Talking about freedom of the pulpit, the Reverend Gerald Davis says that the free pulpit gives me the opportunity to rise above conventional wisdom and palatable opinions and speak to the conscience of my congregation, not fearing a backlash or an open revolt. In researching freedom of the pulpit, I came across a story in the June 17, 1929 edition of Time magazine. The story detailed the resignation of an Episcopal priest in Detroit because he could not freely express his views from the pulpit without fear of retribution from his board or from the hierarchy he answered to. The very Reverend Herbert Lansdowne Johnson was quoted as saying, if the gospel cannot be applied to our modern problems, sex, world peace, war, industrial conditions, and race relations, of what use is it? The pulpit today ought not to try to preach on the basis of authority, but to try to challenge men's minds. This is what I have tried to do. He said that in 1929. We are fortunate that in our Unitarian Universalist tradition, we have covenanted to do exactly that. Ministers are not asked to spout dogma or to toe a line set by the board. We are given freedom of the pulpit as a basic premise of our ministry. 
Your votes to call and ordain me give me the freedom and the obligation to speak the truth as I see it from this pulpit every week, whether or not I think you will agree with it, whether or not I think it's what you want to hear. Those votes ask for me to use that freedom responsibly, but they require that I use it. Over the course of the next six weeks, we will be engaging in making the covenant between me as your minister and you as the congregation explicit. We'll be doing this in preparation for the November 4th ceremony in which you will formally ordain me to the ministry and install me as your minister. That ceremony will be just the outward expression of the votes you took last spring. Those votes represent another part of the Cambridge platform that's important to explore today. It's from that document that we get our modern day practice that only an individual congregation can call and ordain a minister. I think it's worth putting that practice in some historical perspective. In 1648, when the Cambridge platform was finished, there was no such thing as a search committee, a congregational record, a ministerial packet. The members of a congregation generally identified someone from within their congregation to be their minister. Often, that young man, and they were all men in 1648, was sent off to Harvard for an education before coming back to serve as minister, generally for the rest of his life. Thus, the vote to elect a minister to ordain and install someone as minister of a congregation was a vote among equal members to give special responsibility to one of their own. Moreover, that election made that person a minister only to the people who had elected him. In the rare event that a minister moved from one congregation to another, and it was rare then, the new congregation had to reordain the minister. Now, times have changed. Our congregations have, working together, asked our association to run a strict credentialing program for ministers to assure basic competencies and quality. In 2007, a congregation does not even meet their potential minister until he or she is the one finalist for that position. And yet, there's a part of that old system I think it's important to retain. While I have fulfilled the numerous requirements for ministerial fellowship in our association, those things don't make me a minister. Only you do. And my ministry is done in relationship with you, and not in some godly vacuum. Minister and Professor Henry Wilder Foote wrote some 60 years ago that our spiritual ancestors of 1648 rejected the doctrine of the Church of England that taught that ordination conferred a mystical and indelible character on the priest, which forever set him apart from the rest of mankind and qualified to serve in his priestly capacity wherever occasion called. Thus, when you ordain me on November 4th, you are not setting a halo upon my head to be worn for the rest of my life. You will not even technically be entitling me to use the title reverend if one day you and I are no longer in the relationship of minister and congregation, though that practice too has fallen out of favor. You will simply 
and powerfully be identifying that our relationship is special. And yet, it's important that our relationship be based in a fundamental equality. Though by virtue of that vote, I have special responsibilities and power here, it is important that you see mine as an equal voice in the covenant we share as a congregation. It's because of this that ministers called to serve congregations are expected to be members of those congregations. And because of this, I've asked Stephanie, as president of the congregation, to witness my signing of the fellowship's membership book today. Today, I will make the commitment of membership in this fellowship with all of the responsibilities that come with it. My signature indicates my assent to our relationship and to this congregation's covenant as expressed in its mission and in its weekly affirmation. It's a big book. It should last us a while. Thank you. And for anyone out there who would like to join me in the commitment of membership in this fellowship, this book will be available after the service if you also wish to sign it. Now, there is another reason why it's important that our relationship be based in the covenant of membership, a covenant of equals. It's because in our free religion, my freedom of the pulpit must be balanced by your freedom of the pew. Freedom of the pew, in a nutshell, means that you, sitting in the congregation when I am in the pulpit, have as much freedom as I do. On the one hand, I have the right and responsibility to preach the truth as I see it. On the other, you have the right and responsibility to filter what I say through your own experience and belief systems. Here in this free religious congregation, you have the right to disagree with anything I say, to question anything I tell you, to believe only what fits your understanding of the world, and to engage in discussion and debate about the rest. Freedom of the pew means that our relationship is based in dialogue. What I say is not automatically right. It does not come from some higher place it has not been given some bishop's stamp of approval. It is my life, passed through the fire of thought, and thus you are invited to respond to it. Now, there's a time and a place and a way to do that respectfully and compassionately, but it's what I expect as your equal in this partnership. Some ministers interpret the concept of freedom of the pew to include the fact that you are also free to leave this community. And while it's true that this is a voluntary association, no one is forced to be here, I don't think that's what freedom of the pew really means. I've heard too many stories from ministers about members coming up to them after a Sunday morning service and saying things like, well, if you're going to preach about that, I'm resigning my membership. Those stories make me sad. And I come away thinking that someone, somewhere, did a bad job 
of explaining what membership in a Unitarian Universalist congregation means to those people. Instead, it's my understanding that what it really means, what freedom of the pew really means, is that in making a commitment to this community, you agree to keep your brain turned on. You agree to pass what I say through the fire of your own thought, and you agree that when we disagree, we'll talk. While ultimately I can't stop you from leaving, if that's what you truly want to do, it's my hope that the commitment of membership means more that can be broken by one or even a few disagreements. It's my hope that our balancing freedoms of pulpit and pew mean that we can make a commitment to bring our best selves to bear on this relationship. It should mean that we make the time to talk with one another about the things we disagree on. It should mean that we commit to listening to one another before we respond. As your minister, I pledge to listen when you disagree with me. I pledge to try my very best to understand your point of view and to take it into account in my leadership here. I can't say we'll always agree. In fact, I can pretty much assure you that sometimes we won't. And that, in the end, is a good thing. It's a really good thing. Because it means that we are part of a religious movement that values freedom of thought. It means that we are part of a faith community that understands that different people's experiences will be different. It means that we have come to a place where no one person has a monopoly on the truth. And that's the kind of religion I want to be a part of. Hopefully you do too. May it be so.